0: With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.
2: And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.
3: And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging.
0: The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Mum had called
4: me screaming, saying "Jeffrey's on fire. Jeffrey's house is on fire. Jeffrey's on fire. So I just jumped in my car and drove there and I could hear fire engines behind me and in front of me and I'm like, are they going to my brother's house?
5: That's Corinne Linzel talking about the night the granny flat behind her parents' house in suburban Sydney was engulfed in flames while her big brother Jeffrey was asleep inside. From the outset, police suspected the fire had been deliberately lit... As Jeffrey Linzel's family and friends gathered around his hospital bed in the days after the fire, attention turned to his volatile, on-off relationship with Amanda Zakowski. They realised that although he'd been increasingly withdrawn during the two-year relationship and was particularly reluctant to talk about her, he'd shared different things with each of them at different times. And when they put it all together, a very disturbing picture emerged. It seemed as though Jeffrey had been living in an abusive relationship and had been a victim of coercive control and intimate partner violence. Jeffrey Lindsell's sister Corinne has learned a lot about the difficulties faced by male victims of coercive control and family violence since that night in 2017. She joins us to talk about that, but we begin by learning more about her big brother, Jeff.
4: Jeff? <laughs> Jeff was the biggest stirrer so I'm the youngest and I'm the only girl so there's there's three of us Jeffrey Nathan and myself and Jeff's the oldest and yeah just always always stirring like typical big brother stuff right I always
0: wanted a big brother I always (laughs) wanted a big brother are they great
4: not at the time (laughs) (laughs) no they are they're actually amazing um you know there's there's a real sense of like I'm gonna stir you but if anyone picks on you yeah. You know, that's it. Probably my most memorable moment of Jeff being the the most absolute biggest stirrer in the world is um he he had the world's stinkiest feet, like abnormally smelly. And yep. my auntie even tells the story that when he was a baby, even his little booties would smell. <laughs> wow. So really wow. like an actual issue. Um but anywhere you went, whenever Jeffrey took his socks off, you're just like, oh gross, put them away. Just just put them in the laundry. Anyway, one day I came home from dancing and I'd, you know, gotten gotten out of my dancing clothes and whatnot. And I could smell his feet in my room and I was just like, where are his socks? He's put his socks in my room somewhere because he's an idiot. Anyway, I couldn't find them. I ended up going to bed. I could still smell it. I woke up the next morning to this lump under my head. He'd put his socks in my pillowcase. Oh,
0: (laughs) no. So I was like, yeah, typical, typical Jeff. That is magnificent. Obviously your parents... Must have been fun as well to have raised three kids with a relationship like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
4: Like, we are such a close family. And, yeah. um, you know, just, and, and that goes to our extended family as well. You know, I actually often see my cousins in the same light as my siblings. Like, we just all grew up together. So, yeah, so this just rocked like everyone, um, as you can imagine, just how close we are. Just, yeah, all three, like the three of us, the three kids, we were just. Typical kids, you know, backyard cricket or front yard cricket for us. Um, you know, um, it was back in the day when you could play on the road On as the well. road,
0: car, yeah. someone just goes, car. car. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Use the wheelie bins as, you know, yep. as whatever it needed to be, the basketball hoop or the cricket, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, Jeff was always like our Mr Music Man. So he just, he was a great appreciator of music and had like so much music trivia. Some of it was was real and some of it was stuff that he's made up but would convince <laughs> you that it's absolutely real. Yeah, just always educated us on what was good music. And, um, you know, I, I believe that that was a lot of the influence for my other brother who ended up becoming a musician. He's a drummer. Yeah, so he was
0: very influential. He's influential and happy and popular and... It sounds to me like um he was probably really confident and responsible like you know when you I was the oldest kid in the neighborhood and you you become quite responsible you you're trusted with the other kids a lot you're the one that you know the mums will go to the shops because they know that you you've got the kids out the front playing cricket and stuff like that so you end up sort of really responsible.
4: Nah, yeah, of course. And um and yeah, he would have like had to have that responsibility just being the oldest kid in the family as well. You know, both parents were working, so um that's definitely the yeah. case there. So, yeah, um a lot of fun. Um actually this year at his birthday we we tend to go to the cemetery um for his birthday and at his anniversary and um this year for his birthday, we kind of just all gathered and and mum asked everyone to name like the the thing that they remember about Jeff and almost everyone said his laugh. Everyone was just like, you know, he just had a presence and his laugh was contagious and big and just always joyous and just this big. um, He was one of those people that you were just like sometimes hard to impress like because he's so cool. Like yeah. he's got that, you know, <laughs> I say, big, "cool, big brother." Yeah, yeah. So he's yeah. he's trying trying to not actually be impressed by something, but then he's just got that that knowing smirk and head nod, and everyone knows his head nod. Everyone knows his laugh, and everyone knows his walk. Um, but yeah, I just found it was so warming to hear everyone talk about his laugh, which is great because if you can remember Jeffrey's laugh, then um, that soothes, you know, in so many. Different ways that pain comes in. You just kind of get Jeff's laugh in your face and and it's better for a split second.
0: Pretty wonderful legacy, isn't it? Mm. So, when did Amanda come into Jeff's life? Oh, look, she was, um, she came in probably a couple of years before the incident, before Jeff died. So, it's 2017 is when he died. So, they'd been together a couple of years?
4: Yeah, I reckon, on and off. Like, so it definitely wasn't um, for, a big chunk of time it was on and off for a couple of years and I think um I'd say probably two two years um she never came to anything and in fact like when they were together Jeffrey didn't even come to family stuff which is which was probably one of our big like why what's going on like um moments but we weren't in tune enough to go
0: who is this woman um at that point did she try to get into the family you know how that happens sometimes I mean, Jeffrey's place is in your parents' backyard. Yeah, so, no. how did they become aware of her? Did they see a lady wandering in and out yeah, of Jeff's? Or? Yeah,
4: but I think as well, like Jeff was um, thirty-nine. He was mm. in his late thirties. So, mum and dad like it, it's his own life. So, unless yeah. unless he's introducing her to to the family and stuff, um, he just kind of kept you know, that part of his life to himself. And there was probably one event that she came to that was a family event. And that was it in, in the time that they were together or on again and off again. So to some of his mates, they were like, you know, she's crazy. Like, you know, that they would say that to him. And um, that that kind of led on to how often he would then be able to hang out with his mate. So certain people, if they had an issue with her, they were all of a sudden no longer um, allowed to mix with Jeff. Um, one, of the, one of the biggest things that we um, found out afterwards is that Jeffrey wasn't allowed to have any friends that were female and single. So in order to keep some of those friends, he had to change their names in, their, in his phone just so that he could still communicate with them. And some of his best friends, friends that he'd been friends with since primary school um, who might have been in that category were not allowed to be around him and he wasn't allowed to associate with with them and so this is like <laughs> decades of friendship um, just being put on pause or or what have you so and it really did lead to a lot of tension um, there were certain wedding invitations that he wasn't uh, w- weddings that he wasn't going to to be invited to because it would mean having to invite her and they didn't want to. So I think his friends knew more about the type of person that she was and um, the, the sort of relationship that they had. But yeah. fr- from the family's perspective, we had no insight. There was only one occasion that we understood that she's psycho. He'd stayed in, a, in his mate's place that night because they'd had a fight And she'd come to his house and um, bashed his door down.
0: Jeff's Jeff's house or the mate's house?
4: Yeah, no, to Jeff's house and bashed his door down. Realised that he wasn't inside and slept in his bed overnight. Like, and then just and then Jeffrey came home to a broken door. That was when we knew that she was um, very toxic and had an anger issue. But yeah, we didn't know half the stuff until after.
0: Do you think he stopped coming to family things because he didn't want you to know what she was like? Like he, he would have, have to have brought her because if she'd found out he went to something and didn't bring her, she'd go off. And if he did bring her, you'd go, Jeff, <laughs> what's, what's with your mate? She's crazy. And and maybe. And
4: I, I mean, part of part of me thought like that at the start, but then Oh, I think the more and more I've thought about it, I think maybe it was just her way of controlling that coercive control sort of stuff is like we don't know what the conversation has happened between them nah. but then it's resulting in not coming to family things or not yeah. being involved in anything that he used to and and things like that. So um, he went from being this guy that was always, you know, with his mates and stuff to being a recluse and um, even when she wasn't around, like, he would sit by himself at the pub and stuff like that because he wasn't allowed to interact with his mates anymore. And, and you just go, how does someone go from being, you know, that, that person who everyone loves and everyone loves to be around and wants to have a joke with to being the loner, you know, at the pub? Like, it just, it just is not my brother.
0: That's heartbreaking. Having spoken to his mates and everybody later, do you know of anybody who did bail him up about it?
4: Yeah, yeah. One of a couple of his good mates actually. Um, one of his mates actually even said to him, "I need to take photos um, of your injuries because if this ever kind of turns sour or turns worse, there's evidence." And Jeffrey refused to to have those photos taken. And these were these were moment. This was after moments of um, him having his eye scratched, um, his face gouged, um, because she tried to grab the wheel of his car when he was driving. And, um, and he's tried to, you know, get control of it. And she's just gone psycho in the car, um, and ended up with a facial injury. And then all of a sudden, Jeffrey's gone down the coast for, for a week or so to recover. Um, and so no one saw these injuries except for his mates. One mate, Actually, um, who, he was staying at Jeffrey's house, and Jeffrey that night was staying at Amanda's, And he came home um, back to his house in the middle of the night, and his mate turned to him and said, why, "Why are you back?" And he goes, "I just don't want this psycho to kill me in my sleep." Oh wow.
0: I know that Jeff's work was affected as well, because he's compartmentalizing his life, you know, I I guess he's in a situation where he doesn't want anyone to know anything really. So he's only letting people know what's happening when he absolutely has no option, isn't he? So only when his mates witness something or Mm -hmm. when he has to go to work with an injury, then he will speak about it. Situations like that, right? So so what happened at work at Harvey Norman?
4: Yeah. So he was the manager of the warehouse Mm -hmm. um, down there. And I think it was more he he told different
0: people parts of the story. It sounds like a really great working environment and a really supportive um, environment there.
4: Oh, it, it absolutely was, and he had he had really cool relationships. He'd been working with Harvey Norman for many years, for a couple of decades, I, I reckon, and um, he was um, really well supported. But like he'd told different people different parts of the of the situation, and you know, some people from HR even spoke to him about some
0: of his attendance and stuff, which was just unlike him. Well, that's it. We spent so much time at work, and especially if he'd been there for that long, I guess they they noticed, like you did. I guess, you know, they knew him so well and he had such a wonderful personality that when he started shrinking... That's it. ...they noticed. That's
4: it. I mean, and there were occasions that she would just rock up to his work and demand him to take her home and... To leave work and he's like I can't do that um and so there would be some times that he'd be called in you know from management and go what's going on but like I said like different people so his mates had kind of that more deeper understanding of what was going on his workplace understood the impact that it was having on him as a worker and how it was impacting his job as well so
0: yeah so all these different pieces of the puzzle I guess that we got to hear. and you have written a statement um, this was for, what was this for, a, a hearing into um, the changing the laws or in fact creating legislation yeah. uh, around coercive control?
4: Yeah, so I was actually, I went to a domestic violence remembrance service um, a couple of years ago. I've been to, to them for a couple of times now outside parliament in Sydney and it's the only, that I know of, it's the only um, campaign or or service that shows the impact of all victims. Um, so they have this color-coded rose um, ceremony, and um, people place roses for women, children, and men who have died um, because of domestic violence, mm. domestic family violence, and um, it, like it kind of it warms my heart and it haunts my heart um, at the same time of me seeing people with yellow roses, because I go, oh, we're not alone, and then I go, oh, we're not alone. <laughs> And so much of the dialogue has been around um, violence against women, which has its place, absolutely. But I was standing there and I just got introduced to to somebody who actually was running the event and she ended up introducing me to um, the Attorney-General and um, Natalie Ward, who um, was leading the inquiry into coercive control. And the submissions had already closed and she was talking to me about it, and she goes, "Do you know what? We don't we don't have many submissions on male victims." And she invited me to submit one to the inquiry, and it still made it into the submission list, which was fantastic. So it's on record, and I think actually just recently um, it went to Parliament the coercive control thing to
0: to be passed. So um, he's hoping something yeah. happens out of that. Yeah, because what we're becoming increasingly aware of is that. Yeah, absolutely. We know that male victims of violence in Australia outnumber female victims of violence. That is a fact. Perpetrators of violence in Australia are male, way, way beyond female. We know that as well. But what we're learning is that for male victims of family violence and coercive control, it was so hard for him and it's so hard for men, a lot of men, to speak to their family to their friends, to anybody about what's happening to them. And i do you think he understood at any point that he was a victim of coercive control or of violence or that... Well, I was going to say, do you think he knew he was in danger? But he did. He did. He absolutely did. And I think part of, towards the end, I think part of
4: his complete isolation was Mm. protecting us from her as well. And that's, I think part of it is... One, you know, can is there enough out there for men to seek support? But then I'm thinking, if there was all these services, would he still? And and that's something that I think it goes more around the social change conversation that we need to have—that it's okay to seek out for help. Let alone just having the services there. It's hard enough for a woman, yes, you know, to come forward and and to be vulnerable and to seek help and to have find that bravery. Yep. So it's a, it's at a whole nother level. For a yeah. man, because their masculinity could be questioned, you know. Totally. And, but even just, I've heard, I've heard things like, "Can you even report DV as a male? Like, I is know. is that even possible, or is it just uh, like assault that you're reporting?" Yeah. So it's like the stats could be even skewed from yep. from that sense, but but that's why I like the. Um, the terminology of intimate partner violence. Yes. It's yep. got no gender connotation because then you think about same-sex partnerships yep. and, you know, the violence that might be in, in those scenarios, but also this word coercive control because that's more what it is um, because it could be abuse in any form. It doesn't have to be violent.
0: Yeah. If you feel endangered, take it seriously. If you If someone tells you they feel... Endangered in their relationship, take them seriously. We hear this time and time again that people have voiced that to friends and family before they have been murdered.
4: Hey Michelle and Emily, my name is Osna and last Tuesday I signed up for Australian True Crime Plus. I love you guys a lot and I just
5: can't wait for all of the extra episodes. Thank you, Osna. We're looking forward to the extra episodes too. Osna is talking about our extra fortnightly uploads on Australian True Crime Plus and you can join us too by clicking the link in the show notes or visiting us at Apple Podcasts. We'll be starting a special series on forensics soon, featuring Australia's leading scientists talking about real cases. You don't want to miss that. And we also talk back to you if you leave us a voice message like Osna has through another link in the show notes or on our Facebook page. It's next level. It's Australian True Crime Plus. Ready to pop the question?
1: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com host
2: for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
4: It was probably about one o'clock in the morning um, on the Saturday morning, and um, my mum and dad were alerted to a lot of banging on their window and um, they woke up and saw that it was the neighbour screaming at them that there's a fire out the back.
0: God. I mean, it's just the worst possible thing to wake up to. They realised that Amanda was in the front yard. Yeah.
4: So my dad had actually had a conversation with her while he was trying to extinguish the flame. Um, with, the, with the garden hose. With the garden hose. So mm. he he was asking where's Jeff? Because his car wasn't there. Mm. So for as you know, all that they knew, Jeff wasn't home. And she was telling them that he wasn't he wasn't in there, he wasn't home.
0: And she told the neighbour that as well, right? She told the, the neighbour
4: that too. And what we found out later, thanks to um a witness that came forward from Crime Stoppers actually, um, is that he, from across the road, saw smoke and fire and came, this is even before my parents were awake, and came right up to the back door and tried
0: to go in and see if anyone was in there. And she stopped him and said, there's no one in there. So she's telling everyone, Jeff's not in there. He's not in there. Your dad's trying to put the fire out with the hose and yeah. he is noticing what? <laughs>
4: yeah, so... um it was just a trickle coming out of the hose and he had to like put his finger on the, the nozzle just to make it spray because it was just
0: trickling and it didn't matter how much he was turning the tap on. And meanwhile, your mum's inside ringing triple zero. She's, you know, obviously trying to get emergency services out there. And then yeah. uh, I can't believe how sensible your parents are. they moved the cars out of mm-hmm. the way, yeah. out of the driveway so that the fire engine and that could get as close to the back. Um, as possible.
4: Yeah, that and also the garage was attached to the granny flat. So they knew that it was just going to catch the garage. Mm. So they just didn't want the cars to go up as well. Um, and because at this point, the fire was engulfing the whole house. And um, so mum and dad have moved their cars out um, to the front. And that's when dad saw Amanda out the front again, in a interesting position.
0: Yeah. Can you tell us what that was?
4: Yeah, so she was um, sitting at the Uh, water meter, crouched down at the water meter. And that was all part of dad's statement as well, which then led to an inquiry around that water meter. And um, what they found in the evidence is that the water meter was actually turned only a quarter on. So um, there was some deep investigation around the water tampering that happened. So that that meant that it was reduced pressure by 60% to the, to the water that would have gotten up to the back. And they did, like the, our detectives did all these different water theories as well of like what it would look like at full, turned on full, what it would look like turned on to a quarter and just kind of saw the difference between the water coming out um, and what kind of existed with Dad's statement with just the trickle um, was when it was at a quarter
0: um, turned on. So, So we're alleging that Amanda turned down the water pressure?
4: Yeah. So, yeah, definitely the alleging um, that she, she had something to do with the water pressure for sure.
0: Had she gone to trial, I'm sure it would have been accepted.
4: Absolutely. The neighbour just kind of screamed at her face and said, yeah. where is Jeff? Where is Jeffro? Yeah. Where is Fro? And then Amanda's words were quite strong and said he's not in there. I don't know where he is. He's not in there. But it was kind of at that point when Dad went back up, um, that's when Jeffrey came out of the house and he was um, on fire and so that's what Mum and Dad witnessed is their son coming out of this house on fire and the first thing that they did was get him on the grass and jump on top of him and roll him and
0: try and get him, um, extinguish him. With no water coming out of the tap. Um, and was it at that point that, that Amanda fled? Yeah, and it was at exactly that moment that she she went and
4: she went from she went a couple of suburbs away on foot back to her place. and um, yeah, CCTV actually showed, like in the evidence, it showed her basic traveling home. She tried to stop off at a pub in, in a suburb next to us um, as well, but that was already closed by then, so she kept on going. So yeah, massive, massive flea.
0: So how long did it take emergency services to arrive? Then at this stage, there's still no one there. It's still just your mum and dad.
4: Yeah. So I think by the time, by the time Jeff was out and Mum was, um, you know, trying to get water on him, that's when paramedics had arrived as well, and they were doing the water as well. I don't know what the timeline was in terms of how quickly they got there, but Mum had called me at some point, and it was just after Jeffrey had come out because. one I can't ever get that phone call out of my head I'll never get that phone call out of my head but I missed a call from my mum first and so I've got that kind of voicemail and it's just kind of mum screaming saying Jeffrey's on fire and I was about half an hour away so I just jumped in my car and drove there and I could hear fire engines behind me or and in front of me and I was in a completely other, different part of you know Sydney, and I'm like, are they going to my brother's house? Because at this point, I had no idea the extent of the fire. I was ringing my other brother. I was ringing my sister in law. I rang my auntie. Just I was ringing everyone on the way, just because they all lived closer, and I knew that um, someone needed to be there. In the end, I got there at the same time as my auntie, um, and we were the first people to arrive that weren't paramedics or fireys. I do believe that the kind of last words that Jeffrey said to mum was enough with the water. Um, So he was in a lot of pain. It was hurting so much that even just the water on on his skin was was hurting. But one of the first responders, one of the police officers, actually got a bravery award or some sort of police recognition award um, for the work that he did on getting some information out of Jeff when he was in that state. And we don't know exactly what those words were. I'm sure we would have heard that if it went to trial, but it was enough to put Jeffrey in his bedroom, which meant that her statement when she said that he might have fallen asleep on the lounge with a cigarette Ah. um, meant that there were holes in her story from the start. So um, there were certain things like that that were really key, that that police officer really had to fight hard with someone who's in so much agony to get something. Some key evidence from from the best witness
0: possible. So, yeah. Eventually, they got him into the ambulance. Did you see Jeff before he um, was no? Taken so away?
4: that actually brought him into Mum's to continue treatment. So there was this ah. kind of fluid that they balm that they had to put mm-hmm. on him for his all, all his burns. Um, so they did that at Mum's place, which kind of meant that Mum's lounge room was actually destroyed by the chemicals that they had to use there as well um so jeffrey was inside when i arrived and um i I just wanted to go in and i wasn't allowed in i was like that's my family Um, the copper said to me do you know where amanda is that was the first thing that i was asked when i got there and um i said immediately she did this didn't she (sighs) I oh. just knew. I just knew. So no one saw Jeff. Um, we had media there. I'm pretty sure media arrived before the paramedics, oh. um, but they were um, they were filming like inside into Mum and Dad's window. And I was are like, you so, serious? I was so angry because I was like, we're not even allowed in there. Mum oh and Dad God. aren't even allowed in there. And here's the media. Just um, kind of peeking through the window with with their devices and whatnot. Oh my god! So much so that that Nathan, my brother, was so angry and and said to the police, "Can you stop that?" And later on, later on, the detectives were so incredible. Our detective said, "What the media can do in in those instances can sometimes support um, our investigation, so we don't worry too much when media is there because they can capture things." Whether or not it's just something in the background that might help the investigation later or something like that. But anyway, that footage was then was then on on all the news channels and things like that. That's so it so was so
0: horrible. And I mean we all see it, but I think it's really good for you to share that because we see these seconds on the news of a victim's family member crying in the driveway in their the clothes they've thrown on in the middle of the yep. night. Yep. And now that I'm hearing you and seeing you because we're on Zoom, I'm imagining you in that situation and I'm furious. Yeah. Um, because I know you now, <laughs> you know, and I'm not, I've never known anyone that I've seen in those seconds on the news before. And that, that sucks. Now I'm really angry about it. It's horrible.
4: It's quite invasive. And it's just like, just, it just feels so unfair in the moment because yeah. you're just like, all you want to know is how is Jeffrey. So Jeff was worked on quite extensively in inside mum's house and then um, they had to wait for a specific Burns ambulance to take him and so they took him by, by ambulance. I think mum just wanted to go with him in the ambulance but wasn't able to and then in the end mum and dad were triaged, so to speak, to, um, to the local police station. So they had to give their statements while their son is being transported to Royal North Shore, which um, is on the other side of Sydney. Ah. Uh, my mum's cat, we had to find where my mum's cat went. Um, so I was able to go into the house after Jeffrey um, was taken by ambulance. I grabbed an overnight bag for mum and dad. Um,
0: I had to do that by police escort and then find the cat. How much of the house and surrounds was a crime scene. And when did they set it up as a crime scene? Immediately. And the whole thing. So you could just get an overnight bag, find the cat. And then after that, that's it. It's a crime scene.
4: Well, and interestingly, like, I mean, this is not trivial, but it was so important that we needed somewhere to take the cat. The Mm. cat was then exposed to smoke inhalation as well. So anyway, we we took it to Homebush and that's where the cat stayed, you know, for a couple of months. But anyway, we found the
0: cat. That is important, though. At the it's time, it's so important. I mean, it's
4: another member of the family. It is, and, and it's
0: another stressful thing. And when you're upset, yeah, these are the things that can tip you into another crying,
4: yeah,
0: fit. You know, yeah. and you know, I want my cat. Yeah,
4: <laughs> you know, like it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: I get it. And um, yeah, so that was that night, um,
4: and and it's still at this point, no one knew um, how bad it was until couple of hours later at the at the hospital and um we found out that he'd actually had burns to 80 percent of his body and significant burns to 80 percent of his body the only part that was not burnt was his chest and we believe that's because his beard might have protected him for a little for a little bit of that and um parts of his upper thigh Everything else was burnt. Um, He was in a synthetic skin by the time we got to see him. So he didn't really look like Jeff, which for me was a really good thing. I wasn't seeing my brother in a really horrible way. Um, It didn't look like my brother. So the images I have of my brother are my brother, my unburnt brother. His whole face, his arms, his, his legs was in this synthetic skin and bandaged and everything. So it was horrific, horrific. We had flocks of his friends just come and just spend time at his bedside.
0: Did Jeff ever um, regain consciousness in hospital? No, 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 not at all. The ICU doctor um,
4: later, he said that the amount of soot in his lungs, there was kind of no way back really. And that was also indicative that he was in a deep sleep and what, Woke him up was him suffocating, trying to breathe. So that takes him out of being in the lounge room as well, you know, um, because <laughs> the, de- the arson detectives that we had were telling us about like flashovers and the temperatures and that no one survives that sort of temperature that the house would have got to. So, where did they think the fire was started? On the lounge. On yeah. the lounge. And do you know what was really interesting? And this is, I think, the part that just intrigued us so much is the investigation tactics that they do and, and everything, like they had to source Jeffrey's exact same couch times mm. three to do different fire theories. Mm. So, so based on her statement, based on what Dad saw, you know, based on their theories, they did these different um, fire theories to say if it was a lit cigarette, how long would it take <sighs> and what sort of impact would it have if it was with a Zippo lighter and the lighter fluid, which is what they found, what sort of impact it would have and what pattern it would make and what marks it would make on certain walls. Like it's incredible the sort of stuff Ah. that they had to do and they were confident enough for it to be um, the charge of murder. If they weren't confident for it to be, that they didn't have the amount of evidence that they had, it
0: probably would have been downgraded before arraignment to manslaughter. Was it in hospital that everyone started comparing notes about the previous months.
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it was, like I said, his mates that went to the police before they came to the Mm. hospital. So a lot of his friends came and told us those bits in, while we're in those two and a half days in hospital. So Jeffrey died on the 9th. We had the funeral on the 19th, I believe. So not too long afterwards. The church was packed. Jeff was very loved and all sorts of people came to that, but our detectives were there and they were so invested in it. They were so invested in her. And, like, to this day they still message us as a family, you know, for Christmas, um, for, you know, all sorts of different anniversary times and stuff like that. Like, they, they care. It's They're just incredible human beings. Yeah. And um, the local police were there because um, we didn't want her
0: at the funeral. And what was Amanda doing during this period of time? Did police visit her immediately? So she was, she was arrested on the night. Uh-huh. Um, but they didn't have anything
4: to hold her, so they were she was questioned her blood alcohol was taken, and then she was released
0: what what did she do you know um in that initial interview what she had to say about the fact that she was at the house in the front yard? Did... she said that she wasn't there oh. she said that she didn't go back to jeff 's house she said
4: that they um interestingly she said that after the pub they Went to the park next door to the pub. They oh, had she'd an,
0: been at the pub with him?
4: Yeah, for a couple uh, of hours at the end of the night. Yeah. So Jeff was there from about five o'clock until like midnight, All right. um, had substantial amount of alcohol. Actually, there's CCTV footage that shows how much each of them had. She was there for two hours and she had like 11 drinks to catch up. In those two hours, what? so she was, and she'd told police that she'd had two drinks. So her blood alcohol reading at ten o'clock the next morning, when they had to to do another reading, um, was zero point zero eight. At ten o'clock the next morning, after having two drinks, yeah, right. <laughs> so there were so many inconsistencies with her story. She said that after the pub, they went to the park, they had an argument there, and then she went home and he went home. But CCTV footage show. That Jeffrey went home, and a couple of minutes later, she followed him home to his house. So there was no rendezvous in the park. There was no argument at the park. There was no separate ways.
0: No, and there's four witnesses that I've counted <laughs> during yeah. our conversation so far yeah. to her being in the front yard, yeah. of the parents of yeah. your parents' house. It's incredible. Yeah. Jeffrey, when Jeffrey came out in his pants, he had his
4: mobile phone and his car keys. And the phone ended up being a really good source of evidence as well because they were able to pull um, messages. Even if they were deleted, they were still able to pull messages, which included some threats from her, oh. some threats, th- threats of harm to herself, threats of destroying his work car,
0: you know, all those sorts of things. But it, it still took them a while, didn't it, to, um, to charge Amanda with murder? Yeah, it took about like eight months oh. and that was hell. That
4: was absolute hell. We didn't know if we would be next. We didn't know what she would do. We didn't know what we would, uh, how how we would be if we if we bumped into her. Yeah, like just we just didn't know. And and this is what was really stirring as well, like if it wasn't you, and it was your loved, like it was your partner, someone that you claim to love wouldn't you be trying to get in touch with the family to, to, to give your condolences or to anything like that? So
0: Was she maintaining throughout that eight-month period that it, it was an accident, Jeff must have just dropped a cigarette?
4: Yeah, she never, she never said that it was her. Um, there were a couple of phone interceptions that they heard her say something like, oh, I might have dropped a cigarette, it might have been me. At some point in some sort of examination with police, she said something like, if it was me, I didn't mean to hurt him. So really like convoluted, never committing to anything, but her story changed all the time. Um, she would throw different theories out there, but, you know, we had so many people come forward to talk about her and even ex-partners of her who had had AVOs against her, one who'd had broken bones from her before. Oh, All really? came forward
0: with evidence, Yeah. We we were confident going into trial, we were so confident. Um, so she was released on bail on the first of November, twenty eighteen. Mm-hmm. Um, then you had you um, an arraignment, and they were set. They set the date for the trial to begin in February, twenty twenty. Yep. But in uh, January, so just a couple of weeks before the trial was to begin. So, tell us about that, the lead up to the trial. I know you said earlier that you were feeling confident team was confident. But I mean, by that stage, it's just over two years since you lost Jeff. What a strange, awful period of time. I guess there's, you must've been through periods of sort of coping and not coping again. and
4: Yeah. And it's so, it's so hard. Like we were told in so many different kind of forums that after the trial is when you can let everything go. After the trial is when you can completely kind of break, so to speak, um, because you're holding it together and the energy that you're getting is because you're fighting for justice and you're fighting for Jeff. (laughs) So you're confident. You're confident in a kind of a win because you know that the evidence is all there, but you're not confident with the outcome. She pleaded not guilty at the arraignment, so um, she was never, ever admitting fault. So um, had she pleaded guilty, she might have got a lesser sentence as well. Mm. But our detectives were so, I guess, truthful with us. And they said she will she will likely get less than double figures.
0: What? For such a brutal murder as yeah, well?
4: for murder and for arson because you can't be charged on both. Um, oh so, God. yeah. So it was like. You know, you just, you kind of go, I'm confident in the wind, so to speak, but not confident in the sentencing, I guess. And you know what? I think about it like it was the lead up to it was haunting us because there were the bushfires that were happening. Mm. So fire is such a trigger for all yeah. of us, especially for my parents, especially for mum. Like mum can't even have birthday candles on a cake because it's a naked flame, you know, just stuff like that. Like the effect that it's still having. And, you know, smoke, any sort of sense of smoke and any fire engine or anything that I drive past, I'm triggered. Um, you know, it just puts me straight back to the night. And so we're having these bushfires happening, you know, end of 2019, beginning of 2020. And that was like raising our anxiety and in, in
0: just our trauma um, leading into into our trial. So your nerves are absolutely on edge and you're just waiting for this bloody thing to start and then a matter of weeks beforehand I guess you get a phone call.
4: Yeah so we get a phone call from our detectives to ask if they can come around so mum gathers us all at her place the detectives come to to mum's and we're told there'll be no trial and we were just like what he goes because Amanda was found dead last night. We were just gobsmacked and then we found out that it was
0: um, by her own doing. She had overdosed, we believe. So I'm sure there were and have been ever since many, many feelings Mm -hmm. um, felt by everybody. But is there disappointment at her not sort of facing justice or is there relief or what?
4: My overwhelming feeling is she once again took control.
0: Yes, I understand. Yes, yep, okay. She once again
4: took control of the outcome and um, all this energy that we had to fight for justice. Where does it go now? And so that's, that's part of what I feel. And then I hear from just by being in the Homicide Victim Support Group, I hear people who are up to their perpetrators being released on parole and I have this sense of, I never have to experience that it went to the coroner both both her and Jeffrey oh, went to the coroner um, and that would have just been like if there was an inquest it would have been looking at what practices were around you know both considerations and it wouldn't have given us an outcome so to speak but it just would have finished it that kind of it didn't get to the inquest stage so it was just it was just closed and that was it you know and that only happened last year as well that it just closed so every single person um, in that core group and, and in our family have had their own way of dealing with it. Um, and I think more and more, it becomes more and more individualized as the time goes by. And, you know, the word coping, I don't know if we've coped very well. <laughs> um, and But I think as a family, we've coped really well. I think as a family, we've, um, we've gotten a lot closer. Um, we now do family dinners every week and yeah. stuff like that and we didn't do family dinners before and just pivoted some priorities I guess for for what's really important. Do your parents still live in the same house? They do, they oh. do. Yeah. It's, what happened um, to the granny flat? Yeah so um, for a long time it was just his stairs going up to the house and nothing. So imagine how haunting that is. So mum had to keep her blind closed and stuff like that because she just couldn't see it. But there was, you know, asbestos and all sorts of things. So um, it's been treated and actually only recently, like only a couple of weeks ago, did it finally get completed. We've put put a garage back up there and stuff like that and we'll just try and honor Jeff in, in a space there but is the did the lemon tree survive? It did. It was probably doobie. one of <laughs> the it, it was probably one of the only things that survived. Good the cat fire. Yeah. So good. So good. And um Mum said from the very beginning um, that she doesn't want to move because there's there's more happy memories in that place than sad memories. And and he didn't die there. And that's the other thing is he died in hospital. Mm -hmm. So the only other thing that survived the fire was um, Jeff's cricket bag, which had his full cricket kit in it. And there was like the handle of the cricket bat sticking out. So that was all smoke damaged, but his mates restored it for us. Uh Yeah, so we've got a couple of things that we just hold on to, which is is Jeff's and that cricket bag is one of them. I feel like moving on kind of implies that we're leaving them behind. But I think, like, it's just one word different, but moving through. Yeah. I think moving through life means that that person can accompany you in however way you need them to, and that's how I've chosen to to get through. Um, We didn't have to make a decision for life support, so to speak, but um, when the organ donation people come around to you and they basically said to us, this is an option that we always bring to the family, and it's a really important one that we get the family agreeing to this. And Jeffrey, on his licence had indicated that he, he wasn't an organ donor. And what they said to us in that moment is a lot of the time you're like 17 when you get your licence, you don't know what you're signing up to, it's actually not the case anymore that your licence is your only um, opting in, but they always ask the family what do you think Geoffrey would want to do? And I was reminded about Jeffrey's cat who had passed away a couple of months before Jeffrey. And um his name was Doobie <laughs> <laughs> and um and um Dooby Dooby had died and Jeffrey had planted a lemon tree and got Doobie cremated and put his ashes into the soil of the lemon tree. And said, if Doobie can't be alive, then it should be giving life to something. And so that that was kind of in my mind when they were asking us this question about organ donation. And I just said, this is who Jeffrey is. Jeffrey is, is this, this, he would want someone else to be able to live. And Jeffrey was able to donate his heart and both his kidneys, and has been able to save three people's lives in that. That's that. amazing. It was our only consolation at the time and it's now our proudest thing for, for Jeff being an absolute hero, for three people to still have a life now.
5: Thank you to our guest, Corinne Linzel, and to the Homicide Victim Support Group of New South Wales for helping us to get in touch with each other You can find out more about organ donation at donatelife.gov.au. But if you want to become an organ and tissue donor, the most important thing to do is make your wishes clear to your family. Have the conversation today. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.
0: And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, recorded at a Hub Australia media studio, hubaustralia.com. Find the workspace that's right for you.
3: This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator
2: Network. Planning for your next trip?